add my welcome to you all and good morning, greetings. Um, I just feel a, a great affection for people of this flock and um, it's always a sweet thing to worship together. And I do want to invite you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles uh, or electronic devices to John chapter 4. find it encouraging on occasion to take a backward look at my life. Um, t- to do so, um, one of the things that I have found helpful is to plot on a timeline as many critical events, relationships, seasons, experiences come to my mind, and I'll include um, the, the highest high points and the lowest low points, and it's from that vantage point that I'm, I find myself able to gain some perspective, uh, particularly on just the whole developmental progression of, of what's happening in me. And uh, I, I know I'm a piece of work. <laughs> we all are, but um, not even close to being finished, complete. Um, but I, I find my faith strengthened uh, through this exercise, when I'm able to see how, uh, over the course of time, I've changed and I've grown, and, and all that God in His providence has utilized to serve His purpose of shaping me, shaping me for His glory. And one of the things this exercise does for me that consistently causes me to marvel is that it is typically... The, the low points, the hard things, the painful events, the seasons of heartache and loss uh, by which God has gotten the best work done in deepening and enlarging my faith in Him. Now, my purpose today is to show you that there is a kind of faith that God is looking for. There's a kind of faith that God is seeking to establish and strengthen in our lives. And like true worship, God is not simply looking and hoping to find this kind of faith in His wisdom, in His love, and according to His sovereign grace. He is aiming to produce uh, people with this kind of faith. And the Apostle John wrote the narrative that we're about to look at so that, he wrote this entire gospel for that matter, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, but but he wrote it not simply that we might believe some facts. John wrote it so that by believing, in believing, we may have life, soul-satisfying fullness of spiritual life in Jesus' name. Now, before we read it, I want to locate what's happening in this passage in its context. Jesus is making His way back north to Galilee. He had visited Jerusalem for the first time back in in chapter 2, and His activity there had generated some unrest, no little controversy. He rocked the boat by uh, confronting 
shallow spirituality, empty religious practice, and by performing miracles. Knock people over. And uh, then he retreated to the Judean countryside with his disciples for a period of respite. And now he has decided to go back to his home. And here in John chapter 4, we, we read of his passage through Samaria and his encounter with the woman uh, from the village of Sychar, a Samaritan village where he stays remarkably for two whole days. Even more remarkably, he made that encounter the context from which he explains God's design regarding soul, the soul thirst quenching reality of worshiping the Father uh, in spirit and in truth, pursuing and responding to God for all that He has revealed Himself to be with heartfelt desire, uh, satisfies the hunger of our souls. And um, out of this meeting and this teaching, there is a, a rather remarkable citywide response to Jesus, which brings us then to John chapter 4, verse 43, where Jesus continues his trek back home to Galilee. So please follow along as I read John 4, verses 43 to 54. This is the word of God. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill, and when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed. And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. May our Heavenly Father bless the reading and the preaching of his living, life-giving word. Let's pray. It's a great gift, Father, when your people gather together 
to hear you, to meet you, to commune with you. We gather, Father, to, um, to be strengthened in our faith. So come, thou fount of every blessing, and tune our hearts, adjust our hearts, turn our hearts to you, to your voice, to your glory, to your purpose. And where faith is fragile, please bring strength and edification. Where faith is shaken, bring stability and depth. Where faith is weak and small, we ask that it would be enlarged. Where faith is not existent at all, we pray that it might be begotten, birthed by your grace. The kind of faith, Lord, you're looking for is not, is not something that we look for from within us. It's a gift. A gift imparted by your grace through the work of your spirit as you bring illumination to our hearts and souls through your word. That's what we're looking for you to do for your glory now. Magnify your great power and presence and nearness and activity here among us now for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this text makes an incredible claim. John, who, um, according to John 21, verse 24, was an eyewitness to this very event, is claiming that an ordinary-looking guy in one town over here speaks the words, your son shall live, and simultaneously a boy in another town about 25 miles away who is moments apparently from death is restored to life, health. This is an incredible claim. Think about that. What are you supposed to do with that? But as amazing as that is, this text is making an even more incredible claim than that. As astonishing as this long-distance healing is, Jesus is getting something far more amazing and far more important done in someone's life. Jesus is bringing about a kind of believing, a kind of faith, the kind of faith that He's looking for. Now, when I raise and answer two crucial questions of this text. The first question is, what kind of faith is Jesus looking for? And the second question is, how do we get that kind of faith? That is, where does it come from? So first question, what kind of faith is Jesus looking for? Verses 43 through 45 function um, as a scene change in this narrative. But they also function as a pointer. It's a clue to the main point of this text. These verses represent 
John, the, the writer of this account, at his finest, puzzling, thought-provoking, interest-stirring form. In order to draw attention to the kind of faith Christ Jesus is looking for, we are given an illustration, a story that provokes each one of us to look inward to the things that we value and trust in the most. We're given a most poignant illustration of the kind of faith Christ Jesus is not looking for. Verses 43 and 45 again. After two days, he departed for Galilee for, or because, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, so this is a rather, this is the first kind of attention-getting thing. It's, it's weird logic, to me at least, um, that the reason that Jesus departed for Galilee, his home is because, as the old prophet says, prophets were not received with honor in their hometowns. So, if as a prophet you're not honored in your hometown, then why would you go to your hometown? You just want to say to Jesus, Jesus, don't go there. You won't receive any honor there. And Jesus says, I know. That's exactly why I'm going. His face is already set like a flint toward the cross. It's puzzling, it's attention-getting, it's foreshadowing in that sense. But there is more to the puzzle. text goes on. So, or therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And we say, wait, what? I, I thought prophets received no honor in their hometowns. But here they are, welcoming their hometown prophet. Why are they welcoming him? And the answer, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, the reasons that the reason prophets are not welcome in their hometowns or anywhere, for that matter, is because what do prophets do? They just tell it like it is, right? They, they speak the truth in an unvarnished manner. No sugarcoating, no sentimentality, no soft touch so as not to offend prophets are not honored, they're not welcomed, they're not appreciated because they put their finger on a nerve of what's wrong and that it hurts. Had not the hometown folk seen or heard what Jesus, the prophet, had said and done in the temple in Jerusalem? Some must have. Because according to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24 says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. There was a believing going on that was not 
the kind of believing that he was looking for. And so John clearly is provoking us to ask, why? Why are the Galileans so welcoming of the hometown prophet? John's stirring this question because there is a kind of receiving. There is a kind of believing that's quite common. It's quite natural. There is a kind of believing that, in fact, requires no change of heart. There is a kind of faith that does not require any kind of a miracle of regeneration in one's soul. And this kind of faith, this kind of natural believing, is the, well, the Jesus is not looking for, now comes into focus for us in verses 46 to 49. Hear it again. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So, in order to touch the nerve of shallow faith, to touch the nerve of false faith, in order to probe the very nature and substance of our faith, Jesus engages a man who is facing the ultimate test of what he treasures most. Here is a man experiencing nearly incomprehensible agony. His son is dying. If it were not for the reality that we have a family in this church that has gone through that nightmare once and have endured the ongoing anticipation of it happening again, we might be tempted to miss the emotional intensity of the situation. We, we, we have categories, right? We have categories of a mom and dad looking into panic-stricken eyes when no air will come. Who can imagine the emotional bandwidth necessary to watch your own flesh and blood turn some horrifying shade of blue while all you can just do or say is, Lord, please don't let him suffer. Don't let him suffer. So this father, who has tried everything, hurries to make his way to, from Capernaum to Cana. He finds Jesus. He implores Jesus, come quickly and heal my son. And in response to this, Jesus sounds very much like a kind of a finger-pointing prophet. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. These are like surprising words. Hard, harsh, off-putting. I mean, how, how utterly insensitive to somebody in that desperate of situation. But the man is so... 
utterly desperate that either he doesn't hear what Jesus said or he doesn't just doesn't even get the tone with which Jesus said it or he just probably more likely completely disregards it. All that's on his mind, one thing, is his boy. So quite naturally, he's thinking, how, how could anything on earth be more important than my son's well-being? This, right now, what I'm dealing with, this is the end of my future as I had hoped it would be. But now here's what John wants us to see. Just like the Samaritan woman who thought what she needed most was a fresh supply of water when Jesus had so much more to offer her. Here's a, here's a, a situation so far beyond that, but a man so completely preoccupied with his his own felt need, he's unaware in that moment of how much, much, much more Jesus could be for him. Friends, the, the nature of this man's particular situation as an illustration of the kind of faith that Jesus is not looking for, it is meant to be shocking. It's intended to rock the people who heard it. Because as with the others from Jesus' home country, whose welcome to Jesus is not, at, it's not aimed at receiving life in Him. It's not aimed at receiving Him. So this man's cry is an illustration of a faith that welcomes Jesus to the end that one might have life in something else, someone else, other than Jesus. You take away my child, I have no life. You take away my job, I have no life. You take away my spouse, I have no life. You take away my productivity, I have no life. You take away my financial margin, my comfort, my house, my dream, my reputation, and I have no life. There are losses that expose a soul thirst so deep, so real, so desperate, it feels like life is over. The end. Listen carefully. Faith in Jesus in order to have or to obtain or to sustain life in something else besides Jesus is not the faith that Jesus is looking for. It's not a faith that ultimately honors him for who he is. For, for life in anything, anybody else before him. It, it's, it's not 
the life he came into this world to give. Now, lest we misunderstand, Jesus is not simply some sharp-nosed, finger-pointing, hellfire, unfeeling prophet. Jesus remains deeply, wonderfully compassionate. He loves this man. And he loves his son. And he says, go home. Your son will live. But here's what this remarkable incident is aimed at. Christ's care and his compassion is, is not primarily, not mainly demonstrated in the healing of this boy. His care and his compassion, his stunning power and authority is displayed even more supremely in what Jesus is about to accomplish through this incident. Look at verses 50 through 53. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Hadn't even seen anything happen yet. But he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He heard what Jesus said, he trusted what Jesus said, and he obeyed what Jesus said. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, the seventh hour, that's when the fever left him. Father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now, imagine, right? One moment, this boy is trying to, he's trying to make a sound. His eyes are pleading for help. His heart rate's dropping. He can't get a breath. The next minute, the next minute, he's completely well. Collar's back, sitting up, talking, wants something to eat. Loved ones, you see, Jesus has all authority and power. Jesus can turn water into wine without a word. He can supply food for thousands with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus can calm catastrophic storms with a sentence. Jesus can heal up close. He can heal at a distance. Jesus is exceedingly powerful and He cares. He cares but he is so, so, so much more. He is full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. And true faith in Jesus, listen now, the, the, the faith Jesus 
is looking for is faith in Him and all that He is in order to have Him. In order to have all that He is. Jesus did not appear in this world and live a perfect life and die a sin-atoning death in order to simply serve as some middleman for our, our desires, our personal miracle worker. He came not to be welcomed merely as a means to some other end, to fill our needs alone. That's what's behind that provoking proverb in verse 44. Jesus, like the prophets who came before him, he's welcomed. He's welcomed as long as he didn't upset the apple cart or make anybody uncomfortable. He, he was welcomed as long as he satisfied their dreams and desires. But his people did not believe in him for all that he truly was and is, and evermore shall be. They were not true worshipers. They did not welcome Jesus as the life who is the light of men. They welcomed Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. Because the light is shining in the darkness. But those in the darkness just don't even get it. He came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. Oh yes, they received Him as the miracle worker. They liked that. But that is not the kind of receiving and believing and trusting and welcoming Jesus is looking for. And loved ones, listen. When Jesus rebukes the official whose, whose son is dying, He's not just speaking to him. When he says, unless you see signs, that you is plural. It means it's addressed to all. By implication, it is addressed to us all as well. And unless, again, we conclude that Jesus is only a truth-telling prophet and not a gracious and gentle shepherd, let's acknowledge that this kind of for lack of a better word right now, self-serving faith, is where, it's where many people start. It's a starting point. I, I can identify with this. I, it, that's where I started. It was on a summer morning in our backyard in Long Prairie, Minnesota, and I was 10 years old, and I found my mother lying on the ground underneath the clothesline having a heart attack. And she whispered in my ear, Hurry, go get the neighbors. And I cried. I'd never, I had never prayed a sincere Godward prayer in my life. And in that moment, all that mattered to me was, oh God, don't let my mom die. How many people have prayed a prayer something like that? God, if you'll answer this prayer, I'll believe in you. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll believe in you. If you show me some sign, I'll, I'll believe in you then. But that is not the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. 
you can get what you want. And you'll forget all about it. Or you can not get what you want. And you'll still walk away. I did that too. Jesus knows our nature. That's why he's not looking for that kind of faith. But see, that, that kind of faith may possibly lead to true faith. It did for the man in this text. It it did for me. That desperate, um, answered backyard under the clothesline prayer, I I, I prayed, was was just a beginning of sorts, but it was, as soon as my mom got okay, you know, that was it. I forgot all about that moment. And it was another eight years before my self-serving faith blossomed into real heartfelt affection for Jesus. Christ in His kindness and compassion may respond to those kinds of prayers at the kind of an elementary level of believing. It's a starting point. And God in His kindness will sometimes use it. But it is not to be confused with true faith. True faith, Christ-honoring faith, the kind of faith that Christ is looking for is faith that receives the eternal and infinite Christ for who He is, not merely for what we can get through Him to meet our temporal needs. And then look at what happens in verses 52 to 53. So, He asked them the hour when His Son began to get better, and they said to Him, Yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And now something new has happened. And he himself believed. And all his household. Now Jesus has his heart. Now he believes and he receives and he takes hold of Jesus for who he really is. And loved ones, that's the the faith Christ is looking for. And John concludes this account, this part of the narrative with verse 54. It's a section closing verse. And, And he does it because... Christ's greater purpose, His purpose that was way beyond the restoring of the life of a child, this greater purpose has now been accomplished in this man's life. And so he says in verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea to Galilee. Has Jesus accomplished the greater purpose in your life? This man came to Jesus asking for physical life for his son. And Christ Jesus gave him something a million times better. He received eternal life. I venture to say that if you ask that 
guy today, today. Of the two things that he received from Jesus on that day, 2,000 whatever years ago, the health of his son and eternal life for himself and his entire household, which of those things would he prize more? Which would be the greater treasure? Jesus is certainly compassionate. He cares for us. Jesus is powerful. He is able to do anything. But the clearest thing, the greatest gift, is that Christ Jesus is an eternal life giver, a soul thirst quencher. And He desires that you believe in Him and in believing in Him that you would have the gift of eternal fullness of life. Now there's just a a second question. And the answer is really pretty clear and plain found right here in our text in verse 50. Where does this kind of faith come from? Where does this kind of faith come from? Verse 50 says, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. But the kind of faith that Christ Jesus is looking for is not located somewhere deep down in here. You got to dig for it within yourself. The faith that Christ is looking for is awakened by virtue of miraculous hearing. (laughs) And this miraculous hearing comes through the words that Jesus has spoken. It's Jesus' word that begets spiritual life. It's Jesus' word that makes our hearts burn within us with stirrings of faith. It's Jesus' word that makes us wise unto salvation. It's Jesus' word on which, by which, through which we live. Our souls live. And so we treasure His words. We read these words. We hear and obey these words. We savor and meditate on these words. The faith Christ is looking for comes through hearing and believing what He has said. Sadly, the world is filled with almost Christians. And it is a false gospel that says your best life is now. It's a partial gospel that says, come to Jesus and He'll make your life better. Come to Jesus and He'll meet your needs. It's a misleading gospel that says, come to Jesus and He'll make you successful or give you well-balanced children or a happier marriage. But if there's one desire, one prayer, one expression of faith Jesus loves to hear, it's Lord... Lord, your love is better than life. I believe that. Please help my unbelief. And I trust you to produce that faith. And I'm waiting 
expectantly for you to deepen my faith. And I'm relying on you to enlarge my faith until the height and depth and length and breadth of your sweet, soul-satisfying mercy and all that you are for me are enough forever. Let's pray that now. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and fall fresh upon us? Would you open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus? Would you open and awaken our hearts to sense and savor the sweetness of Jesus? By nature, all that is in this world, all of the good, precious gifts that you have given to us, we love them so. And to hold them and to cherish them, It requires no miracle of new birth for that to happen. Just good sense. Oh, but to say, take this whole world. Take anything. But just give me Jesus. That requires a miracle. And we look away from ourselves and we look to you, O oh Lord, to accomplish this. So that the things of this world, as sweet as they are, and we treasure them with gratefulness, thanksgiving, we hold them loosely. For you are the greater gift. All that you are for us. And we will not know that, or sense that, or embrace that, or trust that, apart from you imparting to us a precious gift of believing, believing in the way that you would be looking and longing to produce a believing. And so do this work among us now. We turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen.